I'm Will and Yulevich, and I stuck a fork in a pirate's eye, uh, or at least helped get that fork in that pirate's eye. That was my shot in Pirates of the Caribbean. My official name is Vojimish Anielewicz. When I came to Canada as a youngster, I had a choice of keeping my Polish name or making it some other name. And I had a choice of Wolfgang or William. And I went with William because my last name is difficult enough to pronounce. I just chose Will Anielewicz. Anielewicz is difficult enough for most North Americans to pronounce. I was called alphabet soup constantly, <laughs> as it is, right? So anyway. That's my name. I was born in Poland, came to Canada when I was seven years old, didn't speak to anyone until I was fluent in English. I didn't speak a word to anyone until I could actually speak English. And that was as a kid. And I started relating to other kids and growing up in Toronto, Canada. That's really where I spent most of my life is in Toronto, Canada. For sure, I think of myself as a Canadian, even though I was born in Poland. I decided to take computers. I have no idea why. Actually, I do have an idea why. When I was in high school, my high school was the first high school in Canada to have a computer. Wow. Yeah. The math teacher there, who interestingly enough is Spaz Williams' dad. Oh, you're he, kidding. Uh, you studied from Spaz's dad? Not from him. He had enough wherewithal with the boards of education in Canada that he arranged IBM to install a computer in our high school. The only high school in Canada had a computer. I saw this computer and I said, that's it. I'm going to live in this room. Some Something just clicked for me and I was instantly attracted to it. And I just spent the rest of my day, every day in there doing whatever I could learn. That really is why I went to computer science. But I've always thought of myself as an artist, but I learned how to be engineer through education and otherwise. I sort of ran the computer. Nobody else knew how to run this thing. So I just ran it and anybody needed anything, I would make that computer do it. It was a gigantic computer. For those days, it was in the mid-60s. Was this a punch card stack of punch, punch card? Punch card and weird little boards that you would put little jumper cables into to code. So yeah, there was punch cards and reel-to-reel -reel tape thing going, and it mesmerized me, and there was nothing else I wanted to do. For whatever reason, the art part really became my passion. Although I went to university and started learning coding, my professor suggested I go into an insurance company or... I coded for business practices, etc. And I said to him, I don't want to do that. I want to make art with these computers. And I tried to build weird little, what I called a graphics piano, just making shapes. And then I started making art, plotter art, which I could share with you. I've got a little website that I put as many of my old renderings. Every month I would generate an image for the university publication that they, they did every month. York, York University. University. They had a significant science department and computer science. I gained a mentorship from one of the vice presidents at York University. You know, he said to me, you need anything in this university? I can get it for you. You want it? I'll get it to you. Any computer there, anything at all. And he just made it available to me. And I just made little pieces of art. His name is Sheldon Levy. He was one of the vice presidents. He was very influential. He got a lot of funding. He became the president of Sheridan College, which is wow. actually a very reputable animation college. He was very supportive. He actually arranged for me to be an adjunct professor. I was making plotter art. 
The first one I think I made was in 1976. I tried to have gallery showings. One thing I'm very proud of is SIGGRAPH was initially very engineer-orientated, scientific papers, STEMIC documents. And then this one year, they decided to have an art exhibition. People like David M., the original computer graphics artist, that was the very first art exhibit of SIGGRAPH. Yes, I worked feature films. But to me, that was my proudest moment. They got as many people's art that they could, and they created an exhibition of it. Mine was in a hallway in a gallery in Toronto. The rest of the show was in a gallery at the SIGGRAPH conference. And I got my name on a list. There were probably 20 or 30 artists that were the very first to participate in a SIGGRAPH computer art exhibit. That was my original goal as being an artist. And boom, there I am in the SIGGRAPH conference art show. If you were doing plotter art, was it just black ink on white paper? It was a five-pin plotter that they had at York University. The operator of the plotter became a friend and allowed me to run out of the ink all the time. Like my plots would take a few hours to generate. Usually it was a minute or two for other people's work because they would just make pie charts and this and that. But this is one example. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So I digitized something in this shape. I've got other ones too. They're a little bit more graphic. Like I had a Playboy nude bunny, uh, a bunny girl as part of another one. I would never have thought that was done on a plotter. Right. This was in 1977 is when I was working on all this stuff. For uh, our listeners who want to know what I'm looking at here, it is a beautiful symmetrical butterfly with all kinds of gradation of oranges and yellows. Yes. And the body is black, but there's a translucency to everything you can see how things are pushing outward from a central origin point. It, it, this is just lovely. Well, the blue background pissed the plotter operator a lot because those are tiny little circles in blue. What code were you using? Did you just write all your own software to make this happen? Well, what this plotter did is it allowed you to create a series of points on a 2D graph paper, Cartesian coordinates, and just draw lines. That's what this plotter was intended to do is drawing lines. This is a poem I wrote. This is what the plotter was mostly used for is writing, lettering, doing bar charts in C and in PL1. I wrote code that would use library calls to make this plotter do stuff. The plotter would be happily doing that. And then one of mine would come on this thing and the plotter would nearly jump off the floor because it would just be moving around and just jamming all these things. The operator would be looking at what's being made and he would like go, what is that? Why, <laughs> why would you use this equipment to do that? This is yet a different piece. This you know, is sort more of an abstract with rectangles that yes. seem to be the golden mean. Exactly. Specifically the golden mean, but one vertical, horizontal, and, and just experiments that I did changing pen colors. Again, me trying to be an artist who I can't paint with my hands, but I could paint with this plotter. So this is a little poem that I wrote. A lot of this is math-driven curves that I could generate through trigonometric functions. It was my communist era. Uh, and I just decided to make pieces like this. In some ways, this isn't great 
art. But I was the only one doing this with a computer at the time. You and Chuck Surrey. Me and Chuck Surrey. Surrey published that renderer from Cranston Surrey and made it open source. And so anybody could copy it and do whatever they wanted to. That was the origins of Houdini. That was how Houdini started. You've got a lot of expertise in Houdini, right? Oh, yeah. It's yeah. my favorite, really. We'll get into that. So how did you make the transition from doing the art, which is beautiful? What was the path that took you from this to Omnibus? This very savvy producer manager who owned a company called Omnibus Video, which was a California company originally, moved into Toronto and wanted to start a commercial division for making computer-generated commercials. And is that John Penny? John Penny, yeah. So he posted an advertisement saying they're looking for a computer animator. This was in 1979. There weren't any computer animators in 1979. So I spotted this ad in the paper, thought, what the heck? Why is somebody looking for a computer animator? There aren't any. So I answered the ad. I had been doing this kind of art for quite a while. I had a lot of coding experience and I convinced them that I could be your animator. I gave them this portfolio that I had since they had no other candidates at the time because there just weren't any in Canada. So they accepted me to take on the job. And that was the beginning of my artist demise. It was a full-time job, significant pay. John had talked New York Institute of Technology to sell them the first computer animation system for sale. That was from NYIT. They had decided they were going to sell that system commercially. John convinced them to sell it to them. And that's how Omnibus got started, is using the NYT system. And that was a solid modeling system. The modeler for NYT was VI. <laughs> I remember using VI as my text editor. VI was the modeler for that system. I had to use VI to compute normals or at least type them in. But the interface got fancier and fancier and we could end up doing some animation geometry, but really it was very few people could actually do it. For our listeners, the difference between solid modeling and the kind of modeling that you think about that's done with traditional polygons is that a solid modeling system described mathematically things like a sphere with a radius and an origin point. And with those two pieces of information, an origin and a radius, it could generate the entire sphere as opposed to having to compose it out of a bunch of different polygons. If you put one sphere into another sphere, you could cut one sphere out of another sphere. It's a Boolean in essence. Boolean, yes. Yes. Intersection, union, subtraction, that was a way to model in NYT. But again, incredibly cumbersome. Anyone who is a modern day computer artist that is an animator or a modeler would just go insane trying to generate things with that original system. It was so coder-centric. You had to be an engineer, in essence, to generate almost anything with it. I mean, yeah, you could make a sphere and just say radius sphere and say, I want 10 of these and create a text file that described that. They came up with ways of rendering such things. And there was a tablet and a pen system, an animation system that they called it, but it was nothing like modern-day Maya or Houdini or Soft Image or I'll use the word Blender too. I'm into Blender lately. I saw the hands that you did in Blender doing the alphabet and the heart. 
That right. was lovely. Yeah, I feel a bit clumsy. I wish I had taken the time to be a character animator in all the years that I spent in computer graphics, like playing an instrument. You need to do it often, exercise a lot, and try doing things until you become adept at it and actually be able to do performance, you know, emotional action. And, and I just never had a chance to spend a lot of time with that. But I did quite a bit of procedural type of animation. Well, as long as I could get an algorithm of some sort to execute motion, it was fairly successful. If I had been more of a character animator, it would have been a bit more satisfying for me. And so that example that you just pointed out, my, the hands doing the alphabet, I'm currently working on another little piece, the song, I'm a Little Teapot. I'm trying to learn sign language to be able to sing that song as CG characters. For whatever reason, I don't know why sign language has become a focus for me, but I'm not a character animator, so it's really difficult for me to make natural motion. I'm so envious of people that do that. You're moving dinosaurs, being able to finesse that motion, octopuses, horses, lions, and people that can make those creatures move. It takes years and years until you get good at it. That's my current little adventure is in Sign language, getting a family, uh, a husband, a wife, and their child are CG characters that are singing I'm a Little Teapot. I'm a Little Teapot. I don't know why SIGGRAPH hasn't adopted that as our official theme song because the teapot yeah. is such oh, a... Yeah. The Utah teapot, an icon of computer graphics. That teapot is everywhere. I mean, it's a primitive in Houdini. It's a primitive in Blender and 3DS Max. That's one of the reasons why I picked this song. The bouncing ball that's in karaoke songs, the ball bounces on the word. That's a teapot in my little piece. And it's got the word Utah on it. Anybody who's done anything in computer graphics immediately recognizes that teapot. Especially if they've gotten one from one of the Pixar teapots that they've been creating for the last 20 years or more. At, at least, at least. That's the great thing for me right now. Because I'm retired, I can work on whatever I feel like it. And if I'm lazy that day, I won't do a thing. Every time I get a bit of juice going, I can just work on whatever I want. What were some of the projects that you worked on at Omnibus during that period of time? I'm friends with Dave Sieg, so, you know, you probably oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. worked with him. Oh, I have. I have. He was one of the head engineers at Omnibus. We did Hockey Night in Canada. The producer for Hockey Night in Canada kept saying, thicker. I want the letters thicker. And we'd extrude it until it was like 20 feet. Is that enough? Like, <laughs> Is that three? 3D enough, for God's sake. It had to be silver and gold and very shiny. That was the kind of work that we did at Omnibus. Commercials and very few film things. I worked at Omnibus for a number of years. Then I worked at a company called Alias Research, which started what's now called Maya. When Autodesk bought them, the name got changed to Maya. I was an old Wavefront guy, so we can't let that one go without Wavefront. Of course. Yeah, SGI is the one that bought both of them. One of my pioneering points in computer graphics I was the first employee of Alias. They needed somebody to help create the animator workstation, and they hired me to do that. Myself and another fellow, his name is Mike Sweeney, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. We both decided to join Alias. Mike Sweeney wrote the renderer for Alias. I was doing the front end. I was trying to make the promotion imagery that would show off what this system could do. That was my pioneering work, creating systems that got used by thousands of people. Who knows how many are artists are using Maya nowadays, probably hundreds of thousands. So I was heavily involved in the development and the design of that system, uh, as well as making images to sell the Alias workstation. That was a lot of 
fun. Doug McMillan, Paul Griffin somehow ended up at ILM. They got in touch with me and said, hey, you want to try and get a job at ILM? Star Wars, you know, get to work on Star Wars. And I said, yeah, yeah, I want that. Give me that. <laughs> Having that background, my computer-generated plotter art sent that to ILM. They flew me down to be interviewed, and I spent seven years at ILM. Well, you were there. It's a wonderful education. If you had a question, every genius engineer was at ILM. I kind of call it like a pilgrimage to make Star Wars. They hired people from all over the world, probably 400 engineer artists from all over the world, Germany, France, England, Canada, India. They just came from everywhere to help make Star Wars. That was George Lucas's big dream. He'd been waiting to make Star Wars for many years. That was a dream come true for me, really. I learned more in the first few few months at ILM than I had the previous 10 years. Just learning from all of the people that were there that were at the epitome of the industry. There were some wonderful teammates, people I enjoyed. I worked at the commercial division, and that was more of a family-run division of ILM. The manager see us working at 5.30 at night. He'd come around office to office and said, go home. I don't want you overworking. I want you to go home, go get some rest. The rest of ILM was working on feature films and all-nighters. So that's my movement through the business. In Toronto, I went from just wanting to be a starving artist to leaping into computer animation because there were so few people that did that. And then off to ILM to get to work on probably a dozen feature films that some of them were glorious experiences. Which commercials? Did you work on that EV1 spot? I did a little bit on that one, but not as much as Doug and Paul Griffin. I worked on the Canada Dry commercial. I worked on the B commercial. There were a number of award-winning commercials that we worked on. And of course, in the commercial division, the most fun we had was Pepsi Man. Schwa! Schwa, yes. <laughs> quench. You want to quench your thirst? Schwa! That was his only power. The Japanese artist that was behind Pepsi Man was kind of making fun of America through Pepsi Man. He was sort of a hippie artist in America. I got to do many things on Pepsi Man. I got to actually come back to Canada and show off Pepsi Man to my daughter's public school. That was the first time any significant number of people saw Pepsi Man in North America. And the kids loved it. They just saw this caricature going schwa for no good reason at all. The Pepsi Man was this silver chrome looking superhero guy. But when he would try to jump out the window, he would miss and he would hit the wall and fall down. He was a klutz. He was being made fun of. That was the Japanese way of putting down North American culture. And they were paying ILM a lot of money to do the work. So I guess it was a fair trade. Did you do shader development? What did you do for Pepsi Man? I did lighting. I did shader development, some pipeline work on it. But I also, I'm sure you know what it is. I got to match move. I got to go on set and be a pesky person on a shoot. The cinematographers and the directors found us very annoying because we had to take measurements. We had to figure out how to integrate the CG character into a set. I had to get people to stop for a moment and let me take measurements and take photographs of elements that we could reflect in Pepsi Man. It was really a bit of a battle because they didn't know why we were there, why I was there. What are you doing? You got a camera, you're taking pictures, you got a tape measure. I had to be very meek and not aggressive about it so that they would let me do what I was there for. The most fun I had was one of the Pepsi Man spots was him jumping out of an apartment building into the apartment building pool. And, you know, the funny part of that piece was he would 
jump his way and dive into the pool. And the end shot was, of course, him landing in the bottom of the pool, his head stuck in the concrete, his legs waving around. I had to take pictures of the very expensive women models who were in bikinis so that I could get reflections of them. And I tried to explain why I'm taking photographs of them. You know, these models were paid $10,000 an hour, something like that. They were very well-known and attractive. And I would ask him, could you just stand there while I take pictures of you? It was a very strange behind the scenes situation going on on this Pepsi Man commercial. Most of the commercials, that was part of the background going on. CG people that would make sure that nothing silly was going on that would make it almost impossible to integrate a CG character into a set or a camera angle. The cinematographers and the director would go, no, we don't care what you think. Your job is going to be getting that CG character into this set. Don't tell us how to shoot this. For our listeners, if you don't understand what match moving is, if you've got a CGI character and you've got a camera that's filming a live action set, if you want to put a CGI character into that room, you have to create a virtual camera inside the computer that is acting exactly the way that the physical camera acted. It's got to do exactly the same pan. It's got to do exactly the same zooms. If there's anything in the scene that Pepsi Man has to be reflected into, you need to create a piece of geometry that matches that table and moves exactly with that table so that you can create computer generated reflections in that table and create shadows into the environment. You need to create a virtual camera that exactly matches the actual camera. And that's why these measurements that Will's talking about are so important because you have to know where was that camera in physical space? How high was that camera off the ground? What lens did that camera have? What was the distance from that lens to where the camera's focused? So these are all parts of creating a match move that allow you to then create a CGI character that seems to move exactly with the live action background. That's a great explanation of it. The stage crew, the photographers, and the people that do live action shoots knew nothing about that and didn't really care much about that and just found it annoying because it slowed them down. Suddenly somebody was there telling them to pause, which cost a lot of money for that entire crew to pause for a few moments while somebody was with a tape measure doing strange things. It was interesting to be a match mover in those days. I would think now the way some of the modern day live action integration works, a match mover is no longer unwelcome. They're very welcome. There's a bunch of technology that's available now that helps with that in a big way. You can triangulate if you have a special device that can scan the set and generate the geometry on the fly. That's called LIDAR. LIDAR, and, exactly. And it's a laser that's shot out from an exact point on the set. And the laser looks everywhere. And where it hits an object, it creates a point of contact. By using that LIDAR to scan a whole scene, you can actually generate a 3D environment as opposed to what we use to do painstakingly. Now LIDAR can capture that whole scene using lasers scanning 360 degrees. Yeah. And it can also capture texture information, the color. Exactly. You look at Google Earth nowadays, that's what they're doing. They've got a truck mounted LIDAR system that's driving around in streets and capturing buildings and sending the full geometry back up to the cloud so that Google Earth can see walls and windows and all kinds of structural things. 
You made the transition from commercials to features on Star Wars Episode One. What did you contribute to Episode One? I got to work on shots. I got to work on texturing, creating some of the CG sets. I got to work on lightsaber shots. I was a Star Wars fan from the very beginning when I saw the first original movies. For me to work on a saber shot was a magical experience for me. Being a sci-fi fan, I just loved doing that. There was a shot where Darth Maul and the other guy were in a fight and he was supposed to kick him in the head. Well, he missed by about three feet. I had to stretch his leg to make it look like it had contact with his chin. I spent many a day trying to figure out how to morph the picture of his leg or the moving action of his leg and kind of stretch it in toward the other guy's head. Just more lighting, technical director type of tasks on The Phantom Menace. They let me work on whatever I thought I could accomplish. There was a couple of annoying shots in there which I didn't understand why we were exerting so much effort. There was an angle where Darth Maul's saber was right in front of the camera. It was a close-up shot of him holding this lightsaber. The plastic on the lightsaber got so broken on set for whatever reason that they couldn't use that in the shot. We had to figure out how to match move and fix that lightsaber. If somebody had looked through the camera in that shot and said, hey, wait a minute, just turn the lightsaber two degrees and nobody will have to spend weeks working on this shot. Who knows how much money would have been saved? That was one of the other shots that I had to work on is to paint out the weird broken up plastic of a lightsaber. It was still a great thing for me to work on Phantom Menace. I got to work on the next movie. That was more of a dev engineer scenario. We had to develop some of the reflection rendering approaches at ILM beyond what we were doing before. I was taking mental ray reflection pipeline and putting that together into a rendering system for the next movie. I was very much involved in the engineering aspect of that, writing shaders, getting a pipeline going where you could render in mental ray, render in render man, and merge the two together so that they matched in color spaces and all kinds of things. The second movie was much more of an engineer role that I had trying to help the TD artists to get their shots going through. Space Cowboys. Oh yeah, Space Cowboys. Clint was in his 70s. He was in the movie. He did not want to be upside down in a harness. He refused to do that. We had to get his head into a shot. That was one of the first attempts at ILM to make a CG generated face. There was a bunch of modeling going on, texturing and all that. And then also the space suit, the live action suit was authentic. We had to make that look just as nice in a computer generated. I was working on the shaders for that. I worked on shots, I worked on lighting, and I did a bunch of shader pipeline development. When uh, you say shader development, obviously, I know what you mean. Explain to our listeners what that actually means. It means you create a description that gives the lighting person a way to make something look photoreal. In order to do that, like for faces and for eyeballs and that sort of thing, you have to allow a painter artist to be able to say, hey, this picture of an iris of an eye goes into this slot. In essence, you're providing a way to have images that are being glued onto computer-generated meshes so that they look like what you're trying to render. How shiny is it? How bright or dark it is? What resolution the image is that's supposed to glue onto geometric meshes? That is really the basics of shader writing, but it's also getting involved in some of the math. 
points in space that are supposed to be light sources can actually look like those lights really are in the scene and the shader has to be able to react to that. Something that looks like skin, something that looks like the cloth mesh of, of a spacesuit, something that looks like nickel or gold, those things have certain properties that you can emulate. If you give a shader enough flexibility to go from gold to silver to whatever other materials you want to create and shaders give the lighting artist the flexibility to be able to make it more like what they're trying to simulate. Here's a little bit of history for you about the Maya alias system. When Mike and I first became involved with alias, he wrote the renderer. We were sitting in a room one day we're saying, okay, what do we want? Do we want fast or look good? What's the most priority? Should it be really quick at rendering or should it look really nice? And Mike and I decided, let's make it look really nice. Yeah, it's slow, but we want to make it look really nice. We didn't tell the owners that we did make that decision. And unfortunately, the alias system got a terrible reputation for being unbelievably slow. Still, it looked really nice. As far as renderers, I may be the wrong person to make decisions about such things, but in the beginnings of the alias system, I thought making it look like real stuff, photoreal, that's the thing that's the challenge here, not making it render really quickly. Alias was the first system that allowed you to use NURBS. Yes, yes. That's because Alias had hired a professor who was implementing NURBS. He helped bring that into the renderer, not necessarily geometric primitives, but points in space that described what a NURB was and still be able to apply texture maps to that too, which was also very difficult. That's because Alias was focused on cars. The first customer that Alias had was General Motors. They wanted infinitely smooth surfaces. Doing that with polygons, that's hard. NURBs are infinitely smooth. That's why that became a focus of the Alias system. Really, because General Motors was trying to get away from having to use clay. They wanted utterly smooth geometry. Next on our list here in your IMDb is one of my favorite visual effects films, AI Artificial Intelligence. Oh my God, I loved working on that. The best part of that movie was the storyboards. What we got to see, the original storyboards, were so beautiful, so mysterious. There was a darkness to that movie that was clear through the first half. It kind of turned into an E.T. movie at the end, but the original movie by the original director who died before the movie was finished was dark. The AI thing was a beautiful, wonderful experience. It was sort of Blade Runner-ish aesthetics. A lot of the work that I did on that was extending the reflection pipeline that we were developing at ILM. Rendering an image with two renderers was not easy. They each used a little bit of different math, different color spaces. Trying to get the geometry to match perfectly and land on each other wasn't easy. Making a bunch of materials, again, a lot of shader work. I got to technical direct a number of shots on AI as well. Every shot that had the weird little creatures with guns, I was into that. The underwater shots, I was involved in some of that. For me, AI was just a beautiful, beautiful movie. Yeah, so that was really me progressing, creating the reflection pipeline going on at ILM. Mental Ray and Renderer Man combined. It went on to Men in Black. I worked on the guy who had very little hair, a bulbous head, and his body was sort of like a flying saucer and he had little flying saucer creatures. To me, that looked like me. 
<laughs> I was sort of doing like a self-portrait. I did a lot of work making him look photoreal and the transitions that had to happen. And again, a lot of the reflections going on in Men in Black, I was behind the pipeline for that, making it as easy as possible for technical directors to be able to render in two different renderers and get a good connection between Render Man and Mental Ray. I was really doing a lot of specializing in Mental Ray. I got to actually negotiate with the original company that owned Mental Ray with the ILM people to try and get them to help with some of the technical issues that we were having with Mental Ray, being able to tell them about some of the bugs that they had and trying to convince them to fix them for us. And they were pretty cooperative because ILM was a powerhouse. They were very important to Mental Ray. Mental Images was the name of the company. Men in Black 2 shows you as sequence supervisor. So that was kind of a promotion. It was. I got to help other technical directors run their shots. That was one of the things I was trying to convince the ILM dev department, the engineers who were writing tools for artists, hey, spend a day with an artist and feel their pain. Then you can really make tools that they'll appreciate and be able to use. Because if you're just a software engineer and you don't know what these people go through to make their scenes look good, you don't really understand what they need, what would really make them happy. Being a sequence supervisor and being an engineer, I knew what that was. I got to convince some of the engineers to spend time with the artists, just try and make their life easier. Often, I think software engineers don't do this for a living, don't do scenes for a living. They just don't understand what the artists are, what would make their life, you know, they can go home finally instead of having to do things by hand over and over. And yeah, we have Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Uh, <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean, I took on, I guess, a demotion in that I was working on a cloth sim. And oh, wow. I did get involved in the strangest shot in that show where one of the pirates gets a fork in his wooden eye. That was a little gruesome. I was doing more cloth sims, multiple shots. For me, it also let me know how difficult it was to do cloth sim in those days. The pipeline was a bit gruesome. So you'd had to do it in layers. You had to do a lot of things by hand. Oh, and then of course, when the pieces of cloth interpenetrated, you had to fix the shapes and you sort of did that by hand, keyframing them so that they didn't look like they were going through each other. So that's really most of what I did on Pirates of the Caribbean. And then Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Right. That was more my mental ray pipeline dev work and working on some lighting, some shots and that sort of thing. Nothing that significant. I enjoyed lighting a lot. I always saw myself as a mixture of engineer, pipeline developer and artist. The more shots I got to work on, better understanding it gave me of what things would make their life easier. I was happy and willing to do both. On the Terminator shots, that was the female version of the Terminator. It was a pretty darn challenging movie, no question about it. Didn't get as much attention as the original, but still it was challenging. I was continuing on my helping with the reflections and using Mental Ray in conjunction with Render Man to, you know, in the pipeline that was going on at ILM. You make a change. It's a change that a lot of ILM people made. That was moving from ILM to the orphanage, which was just basically walking about 100 feet from the ILM building to the right. orphanage building. Yeah, they call 
called themselves the orphanage because they considered themselves orphans of ILM. The people that started the orphanage, all of them worked at ILM and they decided to start this little company that were lucky enough to work on Superman Returns, Siege. There were a number of movies that they got to work on and some commercials. My heavy interest in Houdini was why I was at the orphanage. I was tasked with putting together a mental ray rendering pipeline there. So my combination of doing simulations, we worked on a diehard movie where a highway was crumbling. I was working on a bunch of simulation stuff there, but also at the same time, I was developing a mental ray layering pipeline system where you could take the components of a render, which in engineering talk are the specular component, the diffuse component, the ambient occlusion, a bunch of the layers that could be taken and recombined in a compositor. They didn't really have a way to do that. I was tasked with having every render split those things out into separate files that then could be conglomerated together into an image later on. I made that as automatic as it could be. At one point, one of the owners of the orphanage had tears in his eyes when he saw, because he had for years been trying to do that and it was just nearly impossible in 3ds mask i made a system where nobody had to worry about it every time you did a render of a scene data was generated that explained to a pipeline that was reading that data of how to recombine those layers nobody had to do a thing you could just render out a scene all these files were sprinkled out and then recombined automatically these days that's called aovs aovs right for anyone who's listening and trying to figure out what this means when you light a scene light has a few different components. The specular component is what creates highlights and reflections. The diffuse component is what just does the basic overall lighting. And ambient occlusion provides shadowing based on how close things are to each other. What Will did was create a pipeline where when you rendered it out, it wasn't just all combined together. The highlights would be rendered as one pass and the diffuse lighting would be rendered as another and the shadowing would be rendered as another. So if the director said, the scene is great, but the highlights are too bright, can you just tone those down a bit? Then you had the capability of toning down the highlights independent of everything else that was going on in the scene. Or can you just lose the reflections? They're a little too strong in this area. You could just pull down the reflection pass. Or if you're getting too much shadowing and it's too dark in the crevices, you can use a little less of your ambient occlusion pass. This represents a real turning point in how CGI rendering was done. That's a great description that you just made of what the issue was. The supervisor that was sitting in a session with the compositor could then say, hey, you know, the reflection's a little too bright. Could you tone it down a bit? And in milliseconds, that would happen in front of him because the compositor could just take that layer and darken it a little and reconstitute the image. Normally, what that visual supervisor would have to do is sit with the lighting artist and say, "Mm, that reflection's a little, okay, you'll see the results tomorrow as opposed to sitting right there and seeing it live right in front of them. Oh, that's juicy. That's exactly what I want. The next day in the old way of doing it, oh, that's still a little bright. Could you, okay, yeah. Two days later, they would see the result of that because they'd have to re-render everything totally. Giving the orphanage supervisor the means to do that is really why tears came to his eyes because that's what he was wanting forever and ever. It took me a number of weeks to create that pipeline, but there it was finally. They could make aesthetic decisions at the compositing session, not at the lighter session. That became a bit of a battle because lighters take value in them being a lighter and making lighting decisions. If you take away that decision-making out of the 
the lighter's hand and give it to the compositor. So the lighters were really, in a sense, diminished. They were not artists anymore. They were just warehouse workers that made a barrage of layers that were really aesthetically turned into a beautiful thing by a compositor. In some ways, I was taking something away from the lighter and creating this pipeline for the convenience of the visual effects supervisor. I remember feeling that way, but as a lighter, because that's what I was, the closer you got to what the director and the visual effects soup wanted, the less manipulation that the compositor actually had to do. Exactly. And in some ways, it would save the time because instead of just one image, you ended up with 12 images to make a single frame of a shot. The amount of disk space multiplied dramatically. A whole bunch more images were needed, especially when they were high res. The network traffic became an issue. Those facilities stopped hiring the really good lighters. Lighters that knew photography, knew what things should look like to make it as beautiful as possible. It's debatable whether it's a good thing or not, but having my boss have tears in his eyes when he saw the accomplishment of something he'd been wanting for years made it satisfying for me. It's the same debate as is happening with mocap and animators. Character animators got very annoyed with mocap and ended up being unhappy that the majority of their job was cleaning up mocap. It took away from an animator who was good at character animation, turning into more or less a janitor of data. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that ILM's paradigm was trying to incorporate CGI into live action footage. Everything that was around it was moving with human motion because it was actual humans. Whereas a place like Pixar or DreamWorks, the animators could really stretch their skills because right. they didn't have to put their creature work alongside of live action characters. Right. They could play with the 12 principles of animation as much as they wanted. Exactly exaggerate, overshoot. Whereas at ILM, we were trying to keep it in the physical world, realistic looking. So we were kind of limited in what our animators could actually do. Right. Yeah. The secondary motion, the subtle little bits of vibration that happen in physical things that jiggle around are difficult to hand animate. Certainly destruction of a bridge that I worked on on Die Hard, that was originally an animator's division. The animation department wanted to do that, but it looked animated. It did not look like physical things. We ended up doing a simulation in Houdini for that. The problem was the director wanted the event to match the live action. So when the truck drove by, he wanted that bridge piece to land just in front of the truck. He wanted it at frame 38. And the only way to do that would be keyframe animation. You can't tell a simulation how long it should take. It's supposed to try to emulate physics. Sometimes it looks beautiful. Sometimes it looks bizarre. Random numbers are generating motion. When you're doing a simulation of destruction or whatever kind of motion you're trying to emulate, you pull the lever, hope for the best, it takes a while to simulate, and it didn't land at frame 38. Again, it's conundrum of the divisions of production facility that's doing CG. The animation group has a hard time making something look physically correct in all its complexities, but the simulation division can't guarantee that something is going to happen at frame 38. The Last Mimsy is a visual effects film that appeals to families and 
in all ages. Mostly it was the orb that was like an energy field. And that was all Houdini, mathematically generated motion of lines, making it look like an energy field. Mostly that's what I was involved in. It was a fun movie. Also at the orphanage, Iron Man shader development. Oh yeah. The orphanage invested a lot in getting that project. They actually created their own shot just to be hired to do that movie. They spent a lot on that shot. The shot that they put together as their bid for being in the movie ended up in the movie because the director loved it so much, loved the idea so much. It wasn't in the original script of the movie, but they liked it so much. So they hired the orphanage. My job was, again, more mental ray reflections, the material shader development, making that armature look as good as it did on set in full CG was a challenge. It had a kind of iridescence to it that was pretty difficult to emulate. It was an unusual metal. It wasn't really a metal that exists. It was just something that whoever created the actual models of the Iron Man suit I don't know how they made that material, but it reacted to light very strangely. The texture maps were incredibly high resolution. The complexity of the shaders, it took eight hours of frame to, wow. to render. You know, I had to try and do everything I could to get that eight hours down to something reasonable. Didn't really manage it because it had to look as photoreal as possible. And it was a very, very close up, like a headshot. The entire frame was a close up of the metal head. It was an extension of the mental ray pipeline that I was putting together. In the end, the the orphanage worked on. The animation got a bad review from some of the people that got to see an early preview of that shot. They said it looked like a video game. The producers of the movie decided that it should be taken out of the hands of the orphanage and given to ILM. One day, we had like 10 people from ILM come to the orphanage offices and take away everything. We had to give them all the files. It was a bit of a political scenario. It did end up with a couple of shots that stayed in the movie movie, but the bulk of the movie went to ILM. And I think it was one of the reasons why the orphanage ended up belly up. Uh, by the way, another silly little orphanage thing, which not that many people know about. I, by the way, loved working at the orphanage. I was treated very well. I enjoyed the people that worked there. There was a weird website that was sharing what the artists thought of the facility. They rated from worst to best at the time that I was there. And the orphanage was dramatically rated as the worst place in the industry to work. And <laughs> the reason why is because there was a lot of all-nighters, a lot of artists that had to spend many, many hours working through until their shots were done. I don't know why, but you take Tippett, you take ILM, you take a whole bunch of other facilities that were still alive and doing well in the day. The orphanage, for some reason, was rated dramatically the worst. That confused me a bit. There was a lot of motivated people there. There was a lot of excellent work coming out of the place. Most of the people were excellent. ILMers there, including the owners. That was Stu Mashwitz. Yes, Stu yeah. Mashwitz was really critical there. He was working at ILM. There was a division called the Mac Division or something like that. I can't remember the group that he was part of. And it was that group that started the orphanage. But that was Stu Mashwitz, John Rothbart, and Scott John Stewart. Rothbart. And Scott Stewart, yes. Yep. Take us up through the present. After the orphanage, I started working at a company working on photographic stills, bringing Maya into their... It was mostly a Photoshop house. They hired me to develop their computer-generated pipeline using Maya, generating CG cars, a lot of emphasis on cars being generated. After that, I started working for a British chip designer called Imagination Technologies. They wanted to create hardware like NVIDIA 
GPU renderer, but it was something Imagination Technologies was developing for telephones, for cell phone hardware, mobile hardware that could do ray tracing on the fly. I was making imagery, being able to generate ray trace imagery on mobile devices. It was not mental ray that I'm used to where I could tell you exactly where every ray was and at what stage it was and how many bounces it had done. In this particular ray tracing approach, which was a very smart idea because it made ray tracing very, very quick, made it a hundred times faster than it was in the classic way. Imagination Technologies was bought by a Japanese company that decided to get rid of the ray tracing division in the U.S. That company went belly up. I've been there for about five years. I worked on a German magazine, Der Spiegel, which was a very political magazine. They like to do videos. It was all about German politicians. And I got to work with a couple of guys on Der Spiegel that we were magical together. I created a claymation workstation that a claymator could mold clay into action. For me, that was one of the first times that I could take my engineering abilities and create something for an animator that made life easy for them. And we created something quite astounding. It won an award, an advertising award. It was all made with clay. So I got to be part of a claymation world as well. I started working on a video for a band called ABBA with a large team. A fellow by the name of Steven Birnbaum was the head person. He was the owner of the company as well, making a brand new ABBA song that was ABBA when they were in their 30s. The whole concept was putting young ABBA people onto the bodies of stand-in ABBAs, a brand new song that ABBA had not released yet. We were all working on creating photoreal human heads stitched on to stand-in actors. That lasted for a few years. Somehow ABBA decided to get someone else to do the finishing of that. That video, which was probably as expensive as any video that's ever been made, it cost millions of dollars, two to five minutes in length. A lot of animators doing lip sync and everything photoreal. There was hair done in Maya that was simulated and had a lot of technical issues that we were trying to work out apart from photoreal looking hair. The simulation of the hair had technical issues. That was fun for me too, because I got to do some very nitty gritty pipeline development on that project, helping animators get through their day, getting the rendering pipeline worked out, a lot of engineering stuff to help the lighters, the animators, the hair simulation people. So I was much more part of the dev group. After that project, sort of melted. I had a physical accident in my home. I fell off my roof. My wife found me on my driveway, got sent to the hospital, got picked up by an ambulance. I don't remember three weeks of that event. They had to cut half my skull off. I spent a number of months in the hospital recovering from that. This side from the seam right here is plastic. That's oh. high density plastic right there. It's like a whole hockey helmet. They took a 3D scan of my skull and printed this side. So like they did a mirror image and this was inserted. What's this 2022? So it's about two years that it's been in there. Like can tap on it. Yeah, it's medical miracle. I don't know how they manage that. It doesn't hurt. This was all gone. Like I had no skull there at all for a while. They, they had to take it out because my brain was swelling. And if they didn't take this piece of skull out, I would have died. I've recovered completely. And now I'm back to my origins. I'm retired. 
I call myself a starving artist, which is how I started in computer graphics. And I get to do anything I feel like doing on any day. I love other people's opinions. If they hate it, they can hate it. If they love it, they can love it. But they can't tell me what to do, which is very different for me. And so I'm happily making whimsical pieces that just bring me joy and whatever I feel like doing that day I do. You know that you have so many friends who were so concerned about you. you I know, do know that. really I is a miracle. A My daughter started a little website and hundreds of people sent their well wishes. And in some ways, I think that's probably what brought me back to life. I should have been dead. My brain was squished in and yet somehow I'm back to life. I can code again. I'm writing Python code. I'm doing animated bits. You know, every day is a new little challenge for me. So in, in some ways, I'm back to normal, back to having fun with computer graphics.